you would please turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. Scripture reading this morning. I want to read actually verses 13 through 21. First Peter chapter 1. I encourage you to follow along in your copy of Scripture as we read beginning in verse 13 through verse 21. So this uh, section begins with the word therefore, so it's building on what's already been written, and what has been written has to do with your salvation, this great salvation that has been accomplished in the Lord Jesus Christ. It was accomplished by the gracious work of God, in, see in verse 2, in election, and in verse 3, in His abundant mercy begotting, begetting us again in the new birth, keeping us in that salvation, in verse 5. But all, all, all of this work of your salvation leading toward the completion of that salvation uh, that you read about in verse 9, receiving the end of your salvation, uh, end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And regarding this salvation, the prophets looked into it and so forth. So he's been talking about this great salvation. All right, so, therefore, on account of this great salvation, girding up the loins of your mind and being sober, rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who has called you is holy, so you be also holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on a father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you who, through him, believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. A brief prayer, please. So our Father and our God, I pray this morning that you would again remind us that the future that awaits your children does make a difference even now. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So what Peter is telling us is that by God's grace, you have, you who are in Christ Jesus, you have a glorious future to look forward to. It's guaranteed to you. It's guaranteed by that great salvation that has come to you in Christ Jesus. Look at the guarantee again. Look at the, the, the forward-looking nature of your salvation. In verse 5, you are kept by the power of God through faith for or unto the salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And in verse 9, you, are, you will be receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And in verse 13, you are to rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That is the culmination of your salvation. All right, so you have this great, this glorious future of a, the, the culmination of your salvation. We call it glorification uh, that, that awaits you. And yet, in the nitty-gritty of everyday life, you also experience uh, a wide variety of trials, don't you? That distress you, that trouble you, that grieve you. Think of what Mark and Lynette Heineck are going through right now. You think, think, about, think about the anxiety that is understandably in the heart of uh, a brother Bob as he awaits for results to come on Tuesday. Or the ongoing struggle that, that uh, Kent and Lori and their family deals with in Kent's health. So just think about these. These are, these are God's people. And, 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 and out here in, in this congregation, there's 70 people maybe, and each one of you has some kind of thing that you've dealt with, some kind of trial that you've dealt with, even in this past week. And some minor, some major, but all there. And all of us. Throughout the course of our everyday life, we deal with the trials, the various trials that can grieve us and distress us. Well, what Peter's letter is intended to do is to challenge us to navigate through this 
pilgrimage of our life, because it is a pilgrimage, through our trials and everything else associated with them, in light of that glorious future that awaits us. So Peter, as I said, Peter opens this letter establishing the foundation of our gracious and glorious salvation. He lays that foundation. And he does so, and as he does so, he's especially focusing on the future hope that it gives us. So, and by the way, when we think about our salvation, so many times we think about the past. You know, well, I, I was converted at such and such a time. I was saved in such and such a time. And we look back at that time, and it's good to do so and be grateful for that and so forth. But that's not to be the focus of our, of our salvation. We acknowledge it. We, we're grateful for it. But the focus of our salvation that enables us to navigate the various trials that we go through day in and day out is what lies ahead. The culmination of that salvation, the glorious future that awaits us. So he's been laying that foundation, pointing us toward that future salvation, glorification that awaits us. But in verse 13, he pivots in this letter. He pivots, and he pivots from focusing on the future to the implications of that future to the here and now. In other words, the future makes a difference now. Now, the message of verses 13 to 21 that we read just a few minutes ago, the message is simply this. Because of the hope that is guaranteed by your great salvation, you must navigate the various trials of life by doing two basic things. By thinking clearly, we looked at that last Lord's Day in verse 13, by girding up the loins of our mind and being sober and then resting our hope upon the grace that's come to us. So we, we uh, navigate through life's various trials by thinking clearly, and then in verses 14 through 21, by living cleanly. By living cleanly. And in verses 14 to 17, notice how you are exhorted to live cleanly in your conduct. There's a thread that runs through, uh, through verses 13 through 17 and actually goes into verse 18. And it's the thread that is tied together by the words conduct. So look at verse 15. Be holy in all of your conduct. In verse 17, he says, conduct yourself. That's the verb form of the noun conduct. Conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. And then in verse 18... He looks at it from a, a negative standpoint regarding your past conduct. He says, uh, you were not redeemed from corruptible things, but you were redeemed from your aimless conduct that you received by tradition from your fathers. So this, this idea of your conduct runs through this section, verses uh, 14 through uh, 17 and, eight, and on into 18. And what he, what he tells us regarding our conduct is that we need to live cleanly in our conduct. And that, that clean conduct is only going to be clean if it's consecrated. Verses 14 through 16 tell us that, that our conduct must be consecrated. And, and this consecrated conduct follows a very simple but understandable pattern. Look how he begins. He says, as obedient children... And then he goes on. Now, with that opening phrase, as obedient children, there is an understanding uh, continuation of thought. He doesn't write it, it but it's understood. It, it's the same kind of thing that happens in chapter 2, verse 2. All right, in chapter 2, verse 2, he says, As newborn babes... Desire this pure, you desire the pure milk of the world. He's, he's leaving out an understood continuation of that thought. As newborn babes, well, as newborn babes do what? As newborn babes desire their mother's milk, so you desire the pure milk of the word. All right, now here in our text in verse 14, as obedient children, as obedient children do what? As obedient children obey their parents' wishes and their parents' commands and their parents' directives, and as obedient children 
don't do what they want in defiance of their parents. Instead, they stifle their objections or they, 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 they don't act upon their contrary desires. They don't yield to a complaining spirit. Obedient children don't. So that's the understood, implied continuation of this opening, uh, uh, this phrase. As obedient children obey their parents' wishes and so forth. That consecrated conduct that Peter is calling for here follows that pattern, the pattern of life that obedient children establish in the way they relate to their to their parents. Now that consecrated conduct involves both positive and negative if it's going to be powerful conduct. You think about, uh, you think about your car battery. Your car battery has a, a positive and a negative post, terminals, right? And if you take the negative, uh, you take the cable off the negative post and you go to start your car, it's not going to start. There's no power that's going to get to the car. Likewise, the positive. Okay, we understand that. Well, this consecrated conduct, if there's going to be any power to it, likewise needs both the negative and the positive. And the negative is in verse 14. And that consecrated conduct involves the negative, if I can use that, uh, that illustration, the negative pole of separation, of separation. And look what you're to be separate. Look what you and I need to be separated from. We need to be separated from conformity to the wrong mold. He says, as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts. There is a natural bent to be conformed in a way to a mold that, should, that needs to be broken and we need to get out of. This is the same word that Paul uses in Romans 12 too, right? Be not conformed to this world, but be, be, be being transformed by the renewing of your mind. Don't be conformed to this world. And Paul is using this, that, that uh, idea of conformity in a broader way than Peter, but it communicates the same idea, that there is a mold that you can be conformed to that does not accomplish this, this uh, responsibility that you and I have of living cleanly in the here and now in light of the glorious future that awaits us. So we're separated from that conformity to the wrong mold. And secondly, we're separated from our old life. He talks about not, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts. There's the mold. There's the mold. That old life, that old way of thinking, that old way of living, that old way of responding. Now remember, as we look at this passage Let's not isolate it from its text, from its context. Peter is writing, is his context, he's writing to people who are going through various trials that are grievous and distressing. So he's saying that as you're going through these trials of life, as you're navigating through these trials of life, separate from the conformity to the old way of responding to those trials and difficulties of life that you in, in ways in which you did in your darkness as he goes on in verse 14 not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance when you were still ignorant you still didn't know any better so let's ask ourselves a few questions how did you manage trials and difficulties of life before your conversion? Maybe you can't answer that. Maybe you don't really remember because you were so young. That's fine. That's understandable. If you were converted as a child, you probably don't remember much about trials and difficulties. You know, We tend to block those things out when we get older. But those of you who are adults, you were converted maybe later in life, how did you navigate the difficulties, the challenges, the trials of life? What desires did you pursue, perhaps to try to escape those trials? What didn't you know, what did you not know then that you do know now that makes a difference 
in the navigation of your trials. So the negative pole of this, of this consecrated conduct is separation. The positive pole is sanctification. So not conforming, verse 14, to your former lusts and your ignorance, but in verse 15, instead, be holy in all of your conduct. Sanctification. Last year, we went through a whole Sunday school series on the subject of, uh, of holiness, a comprehensive look at the subject of holiness. It's a positive pole of the Christian life that we need to pursue, and we need to pursue it deliberately and submissively. Interestingly, the word uh, translated here, be holy, is uh, it's passive. What does that mean? It means you could translate it this way, be made holy, be made holy. Now, what that communicates is a couple different things. It communicates that, that this pursuit of sanctification, of holiness, this positive pole to, uh, to, to a consecrated conduct is, is something that must be deliberate on our part. It's a command that he can make. But it's also something to which we must submit, be made holy. So the, this, this doesn't give... Um, this doesn't give license to the thinking that says, in the Christian life, I don't have to do anything. I mean, it's God who's going to sanctify me. It's God who's going to do everything. I can, just, I can just let go and let God. I can just sit back and, you know, I don't have to, I don't have to put forth any effort. Uh, no, no. You know, even Paul tells uh, young Pastor Timothy, he says, exercise yourself unto godliness. And this is, this is, this is an exercise program that we all desperately need. So the pursuit of sanctification is deliberate, but it's also submissive, where God, as, as I exercise myself unto godliness, God in His grace and through the work of His Spirit shapes me and molds me into Christ's likeness. So I need to pursue it deliberately and, holistic, and, and submissively, but I also need to pursue it holistically. Now, what I mean by that is not some New Age kind of stuff. But what Paul says, or what Peter says here in the end of verse 15, he says, be holy in all of your conduct. In all of your conduct. So to paraphrase uh, Kuiper, I think it is, he said, for example, there is no area, there is no area of my life over which God doesn't say, this is mine. In all of my conduct, I am to pursue sanctification. So consecrated conduct, is, uh, it involves both this positive and negative of separation and sanctification. But I want you to notice what this consecrated conduct is based upon. It's based upon our Father, our Heavenly Father. Now remember, Peter's just said, as obedient children... Right As they respond to their father in a certain way, we are to respond to our father in a certain way. So our consecrated conduct is based upon our father. And he brings us out in this section. It is, it is based upon our father's gracious call. As he who has called you is holy. Who's called you? Your father. The father in heaven has called you. Going all the way back to verse 2. You, he's, he's writing to these pilgrims of the dispersion. He's writing to you and to me, pilgrims of this dispersion. And he is calling us elect, chosen ones, according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father. And now in verse, uh, in verse, um, 14, verse 15, he says, As he, the Father, who has called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of your conduct. In all of your conduct. And this... This gracious call is, is not um, a call that is like an invitation. It's not what this word means. It is instead referring to the effectual call of God in which he infallibly brings people to himself. For example, turn over to chapter 2 and verse 9, and you see this same idea 
when he says, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who, look, look at, look at what it says, who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Again, the idea is not merely the idea of an invitation. Commentator Thomas Schreiner, he says, he, he, he writes this. He says this call doesn't mean merely to invite, but it conveys the idea of God's power in bringing people from darkness to light. Just as God's call creates light when there was darkness, absolute pitch darkness, and God said what? Let there be light, and there was light. So just as God's call creates light when there was darkness, so he creates life when there was death. So this consecrated conduct is based upon our Father's gracious call. But it's also based upon our Father's impeccable character, as he who has called you is holy. He is holy. So be ye holy. Our Father, our Father, like most fathers, I think, our Father wants His children to take on the traits that make Him morally unique. Oh, perhaps, certainly some fathers definitely don't want their children to follow in their footsteps, don't want them to be like them, like they are. But not our Heavenly Father. Why? Because He is holy. And he wants his children to take on the traits, the character traits that make him morally unique as he is holy. So we are to be holy in all of our, man- in all of our conduct. And the third basis of this consecrated conduct is the Father's very clear, straightforward command. Because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. Verse 16, it's written. Our Father has written us a command. It's, in, it's unmistakable. It can't, be, it can't be erased. It can't be eliminated. It can't be denied. It's there. He says, be holy, for I am holy. When I was a senior in high school, first part of my senior year in high school, I had a job working, and even in the summer before that, I had a job working uh, from th- a 3 to 11 shift at a, at a restaurant. And uh, I would often get home from work, and everybody else is in bed. And I, you know, I come home, and it's, it's about 11.30 by the time I got home from work. And, of course, you know, working in a restaurant, cooking and all that kind of stuff, you stink. <laughs> you know? So I get, done with, I, get, I get home from work, and you get the shower, you get all cleaned up. And by that time, you're like... Okay, now what do we do? Some of you have worked that shift. You know what I'm talking about, right? You get home from work, and you can't, you can't just crawl into bed and go to sleep. Well, maybe you could, but I couldn't. So, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd read for a while, and then finally, I'd, you know, as soon as I start to fall asleep, I could, I could go to bed. So it was usually like 1 o'clock, 1.30 in the morning before I hit the sack. So when I get up in the morning, uh, when school year started, I had, I had a late morning class, so I could get up late after work until, you know, the night before. Uh, and um, by the time I got up, most mornings, everybody else was already gone. They had left and gone off to work. Sometimes I would go out in the kitchen to get myself some breakfast, and there on the table is a note with my name on it. It says, Brian, before you leave for school today, would you please... You know, and then it's like take out the trash or let the dog out or some, some instruction, something that I'm commanded by my father to do. And there it is. It's written down. I can't deny it. I can't escape it. I can't ignore it. There it is. Our Heavenly Father has issued a clear command to us. Be holy, for I am holy. And on the basis of who he is on the basis of his clear command and on the basis of his gracious call, we are exhorted to live cleanly. Your, consecrated, your, your conduct must be consecrated. And then secondly, I want you to notice in verse 17, at the end of verse 17, 
that, that conduct, that clean living conduct, must be consistent. It must be consistent. He says, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here. That, that word stay is the, uh, is the idea of the, the, the pilgrimage, your sojourn, your temporary traveling time. Conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. Throughout the time of your stay, your conduct must be consistent. And notice how the, the writer Peter appeals to our relationship for that, uh, for, that um, for that charge of con- consistent conduct. Our relationship. What is that relationship? Well, verse, look at the beginning of the verse. If you call on the Father, and, and let me clarify something here. The verse opens, in our English translations, most of them probably, say, and if you call. Now, to the English ear, that seems to indicate that I may or may not call. That's not a correct uh, translation or understanding of the way that verse begins. It, it begins with the assumption that you call. So you could, should read it this way. And since you call, and, and here's the whole better way of translating this. And since you call him father... Since you call him Father, then conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. In other words, you are your father's child. You're your father's child. And this is the connection with verse 14. Go back to verse 14. As obedient children, do what? As obedient children, do what their father says, respect their father, and carry out their father's wishes and desires and squelch their own, put their own aside for the sake of their fathers, as obedient children live out their time in fear and respect of their father. So you, you are your father's child, then you live out your life consistently conducting yourselves with clean living. See the connection there. Your relationship, in other words, your relationship with God is not a, a relationship like um, a Buddhist has with that big guy sitting there. Or, or a Hindu who's looking up at the plethora of gods in the, in the roof of his shrine. No. Your relationship with your God is a relationship of a child, an obedient child, toward his father. And on account of that relationship, it is expected that you will live your life, you will conduct yourself throughout the time of your stay in fear, consistently, consistently. Your relationship expects it. And your father inspects it. See this? Look at verse, look at the middle of the verse. Since you call him father, who without partiality judges according to one's work, then conduct yourselves in this way. We need to understand what Peter is saying here. What what is he what is he getting at when he talks about your father who judges without partiality? All right. In the first place, the word judges is in the present tense. What does that mean? What does that mean? How should you understand that? It means it's something that your father is doing on a constant, ongoing basis. So here's what this does not mean. Here's what it is not referring to. This is not referring to some final judgment out there at the end of time that God will judge then. No, this is something that God is doing on an ongoing basis. He is, on an ongoing basis, judging without partiality. So, I don't want to put words in the mind of God because I can't say what the words are, but this is, this is a way that helps me understand this. It's as if God, my Father, now think about this in human relationships as well, father-child relationships, 
and then you can understand, you can grasp this, right? It's as if God, my heavenly Father, is judging, he's evaluating, and he's asking the question, is this the kind of conduct that my children, my children, my obedient children would be doing? Does it reflect well on me, their father? When you think about that, you stop and think, wow, how many times does my father, who is judging without partiality, engage in that evaluation and have to say, no, it doesn't. This isn't the conduct that my obedient children would engage in. It's not the kind of conduct that reflects well on me. Other times, of course, our Father, who judges impartially, looks at our behavior, looks at the motives behind it, what we do and how we do it and so forth, and he said, that's my child. That's my kid. You chip off the old block kind of thing, you know. This is the way my children behave. So the point here, I think, is this. You call him your father, but does your conduct support or contradict that claim? As you, look at the, as you look at the general tenor of your life, and especially as you're navigating through the trials of life, does your conduct reflect your relationship? That's the question. Does it support the claim? Now, at the end of verse 17, the last couple of verses show us that the attitude that we have toward our Father will affect a consistent conduct of life. He says, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, in fear. Not the servile, slavish, looking over your shoulder because you're about to get, about to get whacked one fear, but a wholesome, healthy respect for and honor of your Father. If he's, what he's calling us to do is on an ongoing, consistent basis have such a wholesome, healthy respect for and honor of our Father that will then determine our conduct. It will shape our conduct to the point that we will be consistent in our clean living. Conduct yourself consistently in this way. And then thirdly, regarding this conduct, this clean living conduct that he calls us to, it must be contrasting. And I get this in verse 18. In verse 18, he says, Live this way, consecrated, consistent, knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, and on and on he goes. You see what he's doing? He's contrasting. This, this is, he, he's telling us this is the way you need to be living since you are children of the Heavenly Father. And, and that way of living needs to be in contrast to the way you used to live, the way you were trained to live. Every one of us growing up inherited a way of life. That's what verse 18 is telling us, right? It's a conduct that you received. We inherited it. We received it by tradition. That means we simply inherited it from our forefathers. It's the way of life that you learned by example, the example of your ancestors, your parents, grandparents perhaps, other relatives around you. It it has become your inherent bent because it's, it's the way you were trained. Not, not necessarily actively, but it's just, you know, it's just that they, they say that, 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 that lessons are more, more, more caught than taught. This is the idea here. You caught lessons for life, whether you wanted to or not. And it's those lessons of living that, that, Peter, is, that Peter is talking about, this inherited way of life. But what about that way of life that you inherited? He says it was aimless. The word is sometimes translated vain, empty, unprofitable. Again, remember the context. What's he writing about? 
What are, the, what are the conditions that have compelled people to, Peter to write to these people? Various, grievous, difficult trials of life. All right. So let's think about this. Think about all of the strategies, all of the coping mechanisms, all of the escape tactics that the average people, average person goes through in trying to deal with their trials. Some of you in this room, you had, you had fathers, since the whole thing is about your father here. You had fathers who, when they were going through trials or difficulties in life, they would sulk. And they might sulk for days. Others would give the silent treatment. Just wouldn't talk to anybody. Others would, would try to handle the challenge, the trial, with, uh, with a bottle. And they'd drink. And they'd get home from work and they'd hit the bottle. And they'd stay on the bottle until it was time to crash or they fell asleep in the chair. Maybe they just did it all day because they lost their job. They hit the bottle. Some would navigate their trials by just getting angry. Angry at everybody. Angry at their wife. Angry at their kids. Angry at the boss. Angry at the world. Angry at God if they acknowledge Him. Just get angry. And they'd take it out. They'd take, the, they'd take the grief, the distress, the frustration. They'd take it out on their wife. They'd take it out on their kids. Some of you in this room today have been on the other end of that being taken, having, having a frustration taken out on you. Some would simply immerse themselves in their work, escaping, escaping uncomfortable situations at home or in life by just becoming a workaholic and living at the office or living at the workplace. That way of life, what did it solve? Where did it get them? Where does it get you? Does it solve the trial? Does it solve the difficulty? Does it really make you feel better? No. It's just a little anesthesia to kind of miss, to kind of, you know, eliminate it all for a little bit, but then you come out of it and it's still there. The trial's still there. The difficulty's not solved. It's futile conduct that you learned by tradition from your fathers. But listen, listen, child of God, those of you in Christ Jesus, you were delivered from that cycle. You were redeemed from that aimless way of life. And that brings up, that brings up the motivation for this clean living. What motivates you to live in such a way? Why in the world should you live in this way? Why? <laughs> because you were redeemed. In his, commentator on, his commentary on 1 Peter, Simon Kistmacher notes three powerful motivating ideas in the rest of this section that we read. Three powerful motivating ideas. Number one, the priceless means of your redemption should motivate you to live cleanly. You were redeemed, but you were not redeemed with corruptible things. And notice what he uses to describe the corruptible things. Gold and silver. You weren't redeemed with corruptible things like gold and silver. Now that's kind of humorous because, uh, not humorous, but it's kind of ironic because you know full well there are treasure hunters that will go out on the high seas and they'll go to places where they think that some pirate ship has sunken where, where there would be a treasure trove of gold. And a lot of those treasure hunters have found those bounties. And they've gone down to the depths of the sea and they've brought up, they've brought up this great wealth of gold that has been lying at the bottom of the sea for hundreds of years. And yet Peter describes that as corruptible. It can't buy you redemption. It can't redeem your soul. Your redemption could not be paid by these corruptible things. Your redemption could only be paid by an incomparable price, with an incomparable price. And what is that price? Verse 19. With the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb, without blemish and without spot. By the way, 
Get the connections. Draw the lines here. Back in verse 11, Peter talked about the prophets of old who were searching into the details of the prophecies about this great salvation that they were, that they were proclaiming, that they were prophesying about. And look at what it says. They were searching what, manner of, what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified, when the Spirit testified beforehand of the sufferings of Christ. The prophets, hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago, prophesying about the sufferings of Christ. And, it, and now Peter tells us in verse 19, it is that suffering of Christ, it is the blood of Christ that is the precious commodity that could redeem you from that dead way of life and bring you out of it, transform, translate you from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. It fulfills that prophecy. The blameless, sinless Lamb of God was slain to pay the ransom for your sins. Put a price tag on that. You can't. You can't. Another commentator, John Phillips, he said this. He said, the cost of Calvary is beyond all human computation. The value of the shed blood of Jesus is beyond all our comprehension. The priceless means of your redemption should motivate you and me to live cleanly. And secondly, the peerless nature of your Redeemer should motivate you. In verse 20, it says, He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. What do you see of the nature of Christ there? The peerless nature of our Redeemer? Well, one thing it tells us is that He, Jesus, is the transcendent God. Where do you get that? First part of the verse. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world. The transcendent Jesus, your Redeemer, the transcendent God who exists eternally. This, this, this was done, this was foreordained, this was planned, this was all executed in the mind of God before the foundation of the world. That the second, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, God the Son, would be your Redeemer who exists eternally and loves generously. Where do you get that? Same phrase, the same statement, same part of the verse. He was foreordained before the foundation of the world. Do you, get, do you get the significance of this? God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, in unity, planned for your redemption before God said, let there be light. And the point that I want us to get here is that that foreordained role of the redeeming, sacrificing lamb whose blood would be shed on that cross, that role foreordained for him from before the foundation of the world was one in which he was in full, harmonious, loving agreement. There was no argument in the Godhead about this. God the Son didn't say to God the Father, Ah, do I really have to go through that? I don't want to do that. Come on, Father, please. No. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, in full, harmonious unity of mind foreordained that Jesus, the Son of God, would suffer and die in your place on a cross to pay your redemption price. He is the transcendent God, but he's also the incarnate God because verse 20 goes on to say, he was manifest in, this, in the last times for you. 
the incarnate God. What, is that? What, what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is that he provided a clear revelation of himself. He was manifest. As John writes in John 1.14, that he, the word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we did what? We beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He was manifested for us. A clear revelation of himself. And a very present one. A present revelation of himself. He manifests himself in these last times. And that's referring not to, again, the far off future or the unknown future as talking about from the time he came into this world until the time he returns to this world these last times Jesus provides the manifestation of himself and he does so personally he was manifest in these last times for you for you who are redeemed by his precious blood so you are motivated to this life of clean living you are motivated by the priceless means of your redemption by the peerless nature of your redeemer and you're motivated by the precious confidence of the redeemed the precious confidence that you as a child of God can have this comes out in verse 21 he was manifest for you who through him through Christ believe in God who, speaking of Christ, or speaking of God, who, the Father, raised him, Christ, from the dead and gave Christ glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Your precious confidence that you have as the redeemed. And that confidence, you notice, is a confidence you have on account of Christ. You have this through him. It is through Christ that you believe in God. It is through him, the transcendent son of God, the transcendent incarnate son of God, who came into this world, who died on a cross, who was buried in a tomb, who rose from the grave, who ascended up on high. It is that Christ in whom you have placed your faith and trust and total dependence. And it is through him that you believe in the father who has made these promises to you. Our hope is on account of Christ. And notice then, secondly, that that hope that we have is provided by God. We believe, we believe in God who raised Christ from the, from the dead. All right, look. God the Father is the one who promised what we hope for. What is it that you hope for? As a believer in Christ, what is it that you hope for? Do you not hope for the glorious resurrection? Do you not hope for the glorification of your body, of your being? Is that not what you hope for? Isn't that, that's, what, that's what Peter was talking about when he spoke of the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And what he's talking about in verse 13, when he talks about you resting your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What's, what's going to happen at the revelation of Jesus Christ? The dead in Christ shall rise first, and we who are alive and, to, and remain at that time will be caught up together with the dead in Christ who rise first. What is your hope? Your hope is that if you die before Christ comes again, that you're going to rise again and you are going to be glorified in that glorious resurrection. It is the Father, God the Father, who has promised what we hope for. And listen, listen. He has the power to deliver on what He promises. How do you know that? Because He raised him, Jesus, from the dead and gave him glory. Again, get the connection. Remember the prophets? They said that they prophesied of the sufferings of Christ and the glory that would follow. And it was fulfilled. What God promised through the prophets that Christ would suffer, but that he would be glorified is the same promise that he has for you 
different details, but the same general promise that though you will suffer, you will be glorified. The resurrection, glorifying you. Your ultimate glorification. Our hope is provided by God, and that hope is resting on Him. The end of the verse, our faith and hope are in God. The point is this, that the God who raised Christ and gave Him glory is the God who will raise you and bring to completion your salvation, will glorify you. You and I should be motivated. We should be motivated by this this precious confidence that we have as the redeemed. So let me ask you, are you redeemed? Have you Have you been redeemed by the precious blood of Christ? Oh, listen, if not, then come to the fountain and be cleansed today. One of the hymns we sing, there's a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Oh, sinner, if you need to be cleansed from your sin and your stain, then come to that fountain and plunge in that fountain today. If you say, yeah, I am the redeemed. I am among the redeemed. Praise God that you are among the redeemed. But if you are a child of the Heavenly Father, then even in the trials of life, let's live like it. Consecrated, a consecrated, consistent way of life. It's far different from a life with no future, no hope, no salvation. Our Father and our God, I pray from this immensely precious passage of Scripture, you would bless our hearts with the glorious truths, but you would also motivate us and challenge us to be the children of God that you've called us to be. There's not a person in this room who would be able to say, oh yes, I'm perfectly consistent in living this clean life and the fact that we cannot say that should be a a source of grief to us and it should motivate us all the more to turn to you in dependence but at the same time to exercise ourself unto godliness that we might be the children of God who reflect well on our heavenly father even when life is tough even when things are hard. Oh, may we be your children, not only in word, but in deed, in life, even in death. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.